the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It is a a delight and a privilege to have in studio with me Mr. Tom Lewis, T.W. Lewis. He is the... He is the uh, Primus Interparis, the Fons et Origio of the whole center at uh, ASU, the Lewis Center at ASU, around which the whole free speech crisis we've been talking about for the past six or seven months really um, was um, was founded upon. And uh, he is also the author of a very important book. I would say that this would be a great book to give to a student going off to college or in about nine months when they're graduating college, called Solid Title is Solid Ground, a Foundation for Winning in Work and in Life. He is a uh, load-bearing pillar of our community, and one of the things that was so offensive to me was how the center uh, that he founded at ASU, his name was dragged through the mud and defamed by uh, pseudo-sophisticated intellectuals at the uh, Barrett uh, Honors College at ASU, uh, we're going to talk to Mr. Lewis about his life, about his thoughts, about the center, about his thoughts on higher education. Mr. Lewis, welcome to the studios and welcome to the show. Good to have you here, sir. Seth, thank you. And it's really a pleasure to be with you today. And I look forward to having a conversation. Tell the audience, first-time guest, I do this with all my first-time guests, a little autobiography, where you grew up, uh, how you grew up, and how you came to be doing what you're doing, any, yeah. w- any way you want. Yeah. Um, I was a Navy brat. Um, my dad had served in World War II in the Pacific, and uh, was born in 1949 in Salt Lake or in, in uh, Ogden, Utah. Uh, There's a little Navy depot there that we were stationed in for a while, and then moved around. Lived in Rhode Island, lived in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Pensacola, Florida, and so as a Navy brat, <clears throat> my mother used to say, "Grow where you're planted," mm-hmm. and we would move every three or four years. And it was just like, where are we going, Mom? <laughs> you know, and and uh, our, our our dad went to Alaska once for a year, and went to went to Formosa for another year, and so you really just uh, kind of go with the flow and grow where you're planted. I thought that was a great uh, thing my mother would just teach us. And uh, but we got got to live in a lot of different places, and meet a lot of different people, and I think uh, kids that grow up in the military <clears throat> have a certain resilience about them. I think because they have to, you know, and. Uh, but um, but one of the things I did have that most military kids didn't have was I knew where I was from. And uh, both of my parents were from a small county in eastern Kentucky. <clears throat> and um, it's called Letcher County. And it was right on the Tennessee border, southeastern Kentucky, deep Appalachia, coal country. And uh, we would spend our summers up there. And, uh, you know, my grandparents were wonderful people and I got to know all these small town people and and just really that was kind of my my youth was spending the summers in eastern Kentucky and then when I turned about 12 my dad retired from the navy and we moved back to Lexington Kentucky which is more of a university town and you know a bigger city and pretty urban and suburban and so <clears throat> that's really where I went to high school and then later to the University of Kentucky 
Um, played football in high school. That was probably the coolest thing I did. I mean, the, the friendships. But what I really talk about in football is it's not about winning or losing. It's, it's, about, it's about life lessons. <clears throat> and the best life lessons that you pick up in playing sports, in football certainly part of it, is you learn to lose. Uh, you learn to shake it off. You learn to get knocked down. You learn to get back up. Um, and so I had great coaches and, and great friends. And so really learned the, the, the real spirit of a team. You know, when everybody loves to talk about teams these days and mm-hmm. team this and yeah. team that. But if you haven't played sports, you really don't quite understand what a team is. You know, but you, you've really got everybody's back, I think. And so that was a great experience. Went to the University of Kentucky. Another great experience. A lot of good friends. I, I picked the wrong major. <clears throat> I majored in mechanical engineering. You know, my mom wanted me to be an engineer. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer. I had no clue, like all high school kids. So I picked one and uh, did that. And But it took me about two years to figure out that was not the right major for me. And so I went straight to graduate business school after college. And, <clears throat> and that was really the right thing for me, for for my for my natural talent and I love to tell people forget about your passion Mm -hmm. you know that changes every week maybe every month but your talent does not change and your talent is really what you want to build your career around and Mm so part of your early years your high school and college years and even early career you're really trying to find your talent we all have one it's God-given you know, we all have something or more or one or two things that we're just really good at with little or no effort. And so that's what you got to try to find. And it's hard to find, you know, but your, your friends can tell you what it is, that your mother can tell you what it is. Your, uh, so <clears throat> I think you have a, most of us have a sense of what we're really good at <clears throat> and what we're not good at, <laughs> you know. And so I learned a lot of that and then had another great experience in, at, uh, Ch- at Chapel Hill where I got my MBA. Um, the faculty there were amazing, uh, good friends. And then I started my career, had four or five jobs, and uh, and eventually started my own company when I was 41, having having worked for five different companies and six or eight different bosses and lived in six or eight different cities. And so I had a lot of experiences uh, to be 40 years old, but I was ready to start a company at 40. I wasn't ready to start a company at 30. And so when when students tell me they're going to start a company right out of college, I go, wait a minute, man, you are not ready, you know. You haven't lost a lot. You right. haven't lost enough. You haven't learned enough lessons in failure, perhaps. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I actually had a, a home-building business in Denver mm-hmm. that went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And that was really the only really failure I'd had, I mean, a real failure. But that was right after that was when I knew I was ready to start my own company because now I had failed pretty badly. And so now I had the, you know, I I knew what it felt like and I knew exactly what not to do again. Mm -hmm. And so you have to learn those lessons. You can't read a book about it too much. You kind of have to learn them. Mechanical engineering, home building, a lot of of what you might call hard sciences and and a a lot of hard work, hand work. And somehow you got interested in higher education or at least supplementing mm-hmm. uh, students' higher education. Where did that come from? Well, we have three sons. And uh, 
as a parent, there's not many things that are more fun than than sending your kids off to college. I mean, that's just an exciting time. They're writing essays. They're filling out applications. You say, you know, where do you want to go to school? Yeah. And, and you're going to try to pay for it or help them get there. And they're applying for scholarships. And so we, in 1999, we sent our first son to college. He went to Pepperdine. Uh, in 2001, we sent our second son to college, and he went to the University of Virginia. And then in 2005, we sent our third son to the University of Arizona. So that was just a lot of fun. <clears throat> and then they'd bring their buddies home, and, and we got to meet all their friends, and we'd go visit them, and it was just so much fun. And, you know, for me, college was the most fun I've ever had in my life at, at the University of Kentucky. It was just, I lived on campus in a fraternity house for three years. Never had more fun in my life and never will. You know, you, you can't repeat this. <clears throat> but so it was just so much fun to, to, to get involved in colleges, different colleges. And so we then started a scholarship program to help uh, really good students that, that had academic achievement, leadership potential, and a financial need. And so we were really looking for the, for the kids who were really driven and who had talent and who – but didn't have the financial wherewithal. And so we gave scholarships for 20 years to typically, typically it was 10 a year that we would give, but we would interview about 40 kids every year. And so it was so much fun to interview these high school kids that were all ambitious and ready to go off. And we sent a lot of kids to the Ivy Leagues. And then later we sent them all in state. And then we decided to send them all to Barrett Honors College. And that was about 2000, maybe 12. Okay. <clears throat> and we thought we'd put them all together so we could do a real scholarship program to wrap around career counseling uh, services, uh, self-awareness assessments, uh, speaker series. I mean, just we'd, so we'd have like 40 students at Barrett at one time, and we could do all these things for them. And so that was really the genesis of the TWS Center. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Tom Lewis is my guest, T.W. Lewis. His book, Solid Ground, A Foundation for Winning and Working in Life. When we come back, I want to talk about the creation of the Lewis Center at ASU. Well, let's say it's rise and demise, if you will. Mr. Tom Lewis and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Mr. Tom Lewis is my guest. He was the founder of the T.W. Lewis Center at uh, the Barrett Honors College at ASU. Mr. Lewis, um, we've had Ann Atkinson in here. We've talked with her at great length. I've done a lot of work with her. So most of the audience knows the story of some of its demise. Tell the audience just a little bit about what the idea, concept, and dream of it was when you founded it at ASU in the first place? Would it be accurate to say it was to create something a little different than what ASU was offering? I mean, I presume anyone who founds a center at a college or university Mm -hmm. sees that it needs to fill some kind of gap, some kind of a hole that a founder sees. What was the point of yours? Okay, so my point goes back. That's a great question, Seth. My my hole goes back to my college experience, which I would rate as a plus, except for one thing. There was no career counseling. Mm-hmm. There was no, you know, they teach you these engineering classes and teach you these business classes, and you go to your court, your class and you take the test, and then you'd add it all up, and that was your GPA, and then you got a diploma. Mm-hmm. And there was no 
preparation for the next step. So you, and in my case, I was fortunate because I went straight to graduate business school. Mm-hmm. So I, <clears throat> so I knew what I was, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't like wandering out into the job market like most kids do today. <clears throat> and I thought, man, uh, you know, in my book, Solid Ground, there's a chapter on career management. Mm-hmm. Uh, career management is a very important subject. <clears throat> there's a lot of people in this world, most of them, I would say, that have great talent, but they went down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. They, they, they got into some industry or some job or some role that they weren't really good good at, that they weren't really suited for. And then once you get started down a road, it is very hard to do a U-turn mm-hmm. or even to get off the road. <clears throat> so I think, why are these colleges not teaching students that? And the answer is that they're all academics. <clears throat> they All they know is how to get a Ph.D., and how to write your your CV. Mm-hmm. You know, this, uh, Do you know what CV stands for? Uh, curriculum vitae, right? Which yeah, means yeah, yeah, that is a, body it, of life, right? That is kind of an obnoxious yeah. Yeah. intellectual uh, concept. Right. And I've seen faculty that have 250-page right. CVs that record every meeting they ever went to, every, <laughs> right, right, every committee right, they've ever been on, right, every right. paper they've ever right. been Attending a conference, right? Yeah, yeah attending yeah. conferences. I yeah. mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So that's all they know. But, yeah. but, the, but you know, 95% of the students they're teaching are not going down that road, but they have no, no career mm-hmm. pr- preparation. Mm-hmm. So, I, so the center at ASU, the purpose of it <clears throat> is to better prepare the students for the challenges and opportunities of life mm-hmm. and and in that includes career so it's really preparing them for, for life not just preparing them to graduate from college because then then what you mm-hmm. know so really preparing them for a good life and uh but they don't do that no. <clears throat> they do not do that and the faculty are kind of myopic and you know they they teach psychology and they're deep in the weeds in that or they teach the history of Russia or some obscure subject like that. And it is not preparing these kids for life. So that was the center. And the idea was, you know, there's so many scholarship kids I'd talk to. I'd say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they'd say, I want to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I'd say, have you ever met a doctor? <laughs> no. Right. Ever been to a doctor? No. Right. You know, I want to be a nuclear engineer. Do you, do you, have you, do you know one? Do you know what they do? No. So... The idea was bring grown-ups in, bring mm-hmm. people from all walks of life, talk about their careers, you know, just kind of get people beginning to think about their careers. And then we would also give them a self-awareness assessments where they can really see what their values are. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's really important that they tie your career to your values. So to take away a bit of the abstract and put it into the practical so that these students had something to do when they graduated, that already is an assault, if not an insult. I could see, I can see this, I can see this problem already developing yeah. with uh, academics who uh, specialize in, um, in, in obscuritanism, you know, uh, demonstrating things through methods that are obscure and hard to understand in a language only they can kind of, if you will, snicker at with their exquisite use of their invented words. There's something about this faculty, particularly at Barrett, when I look at their areas of expertise, because the last program 
that the Lewis Center put on was titled Health, Wealth, and Happiness, and I thought immediately there's a problem. I can see it. You know, immediately there's a problem. Health itself has become such a politicized thing, especially over the last three to four years. Wealth, well, you know, that drives that drives the idea of building wealth, the idea that wealth is important. That's going to drive any Marxist mad. And that last one, happiness, happiness, that may have been the greatest sticking point. <laughs> Interestingly enough, that was the topic Dennis Prager was expert at. And uh, he's the one who probably took the most slings and arrows after 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 your name. And and I thought, yeah, happiness, because you look at what these faculties specialize in. Uh, they, you know, they, we've done this before. I won't go through it. It's it's, but there's a sadness there. There's a, a dolorous attitude, not only about America but about life. Mm-hmm. They really do think of life as a sad challenge and a really a miserable miserable existence and you're trying to teach kids something about you know an optimistic opportunity and ownership society right there there's the conflict you're teaching that you can be happy a country that was founded on the pursuit of happiness by the way and the professors are saying no no this is a veil of tears well you know too i i want to say the american dream you know um i i've gotten to know mike pence a little bit yeah and, uh, you know, he told me about his book, and then I gave him my book. Yeah. And he went home and read it. Mm-hmm. And then, then he uh, he told me it really inspired him to run for president uh-huh. because one quote in there that said, 20 years from now, you will regret more what you didn't do yeah. than what you did do. Mm-hmm. But but then he gave me a quote that's, that's on my, the book that we're republishing now that said, solid ground should be mandatory reading for it, for anyone who's interested in living the American dream. Right. <clears throat> well, the the American dream is in my DNA. Sure. I mean, I kind of did that myself. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm trying to promote that kind of optimism mm-hmm. to young adults because they can do it too in this great country. And um, But I think you're right. I think in the uh, in academia, it is kind of a, these people are siloed in their little groups and they're, they fight with each other and they, they have their little turfs. And, yeah, they think the American dream is a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they they do not think highly of this country, and so why would they want to have their students, their charges, the people who study, look up to them and respect them, think that they can embrace the values of a country that you say yeah. stands for freedom, equality, and the pursuit of happiness? And they're saying, no, it really stands for misery and slavery, and yeah, and racism, yeah, and, and right, and. Uh, all the bad things. Yeah. Let me pick up on that when we come back. We'll take a quick commercial break. Tom Lewis is my guest, D.W. Lewis. He is the author of a very good book. I, it's, uh, it was published, what, about a couple years ago? Couple, yeah. couple, couple, just a couple years ago, uh, Solid Ground. And when we come back, I should like to talk to you about the courage it took for you to say to ASU, you know what? I'm done. I'm pulling out my money. You're going to defame me. You're going to defame these great people. You're going to call us the worst names in the world. Um, I'll put my money in better places. A good friend named uh, Troy who wrote a letter to you saying how courageous you were for doing it. I'm sure you got lots of those kinds of letters. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Mr. Tom Lewis is my guest, author of Solid Ground, a foundation for winning in work and in life. He, of course, was the founder of the Lewis Center at ASU which is no more, but only because it was uh, slandered and had its name dragged through the mud 
because they dared put on a program on health, wealth, and happiness featuring such uh, such white nationalists, as 39 professors publicly wrote, as Dennis Prager. Don't blame you for withdrawing because the administration did not stand up for you, the Board of Regents did not stand up for you or them or the students or the center uh, or common sense. Uh, it takes some courage to take on a university, Mr. Lewis, and I know of at least one very good close friend uh, of mine who wrote you a letter thanking you for your courage. I haven't seen anything much like that except for maybe two other instances very far, very far apart. Remember back in, I think it was in the late 90s, uh, Sid Bass withdrew some money from Yale because he endowed a Western Civ project that they would not spend the money on. Mm-hmm. And then there was more recently a case at, I think, the University of Richmond uh, at the law school, perhaps. But it took some courage for you to take on ASU and say, you know, go pound sand. Mm-hmm. No? Aristotle says courage is the first virtue, so thank you and thank God for that. Yeah, well— um you know, for me, it was a 20-year process and uh, of, of, of steady and reoccurring disappointments. And I can remember the first disappointment I had, uh, I've given to three public universities, um, was I was trying to create a, a, a kind of a book, a, you know, a, class, a great books course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the great books were not, uh, you know, the classics. They were how to win friends and influence people. They were the seven. Oh, the old Carnegie stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The Dale Carnegie, yeah. Stephen Covey, yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. All what you know? I've read all the the motivational sure. how to be a success books. Yeah, and um, I thought the students should read those books yeah. as opposed to <clears throat> if you look at the books that the, <laughs> the faculty are giving their kids are giving the students today. It is ridiculous. Well, I'll give you one from one of the faculty members at uh, the Barrett Honors College. I'm sure the Barretts must be very mm. proud of this. He promotes it on his website in ASU. It does. And there's a word in here I cannot use legally, uh, according to the FCC, but it's how to F a Kraken, cephalopod sexualities and non-binary, <clears throat> non-binary genders in ebook yeah. erotica. Yeah. That's but, what they're doing. But, but anyway, so 20 years ago, yeah. I, I was trying to create a class where, where I was going to buy the books for yeah. all the kids. And have them read the great motivational success books that I read that yeah. really changed my life. And the faculty <clears throat> member or the person in charge of it said, well, you know, we really can't have a donor picking books <laughs> for our students. So what we could do is appoint a committee and you could be on the committee. But the problem with all these books you're recommending is that they're all written by white men and we need to get some diversity. This was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We need to get some diversity in here. We need to get some women in here. And so they end up dropping How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie, mm-hmm. with Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so, <clears throat> but that, that's when it started 20 mm-hmm. years ago. And then I could go on and on. Yep. Just a lot of, I just kept banging my head against the wall, trying to get in the classroom, trying to change uh some some of the messaging that students were and I, and I thought well hey if I pay for it <clears throat> they'll teach a class on uh, on on career management but then <clears throat> they would uh, what at ASU even when I first started I funded a class on free enterprise mm-hmm. this was like four or five years ago and what I found out there was this huge outcry the faculty did not believe in free enterprise they wanted to teach anti free enterprise so really? Are, are you kidding me? <clears throat> and so they would take the money. They I would pay for the professor, but they would morph sure. 
the the intent of the gift into something and and you know I don't attend these classes you don't know what's going on you assume if you sign a, an agreement that the other party will pay attention and try to respect the terms of an agreement yeah I mean, you know I, I'm a business guy you know I you know when you enter into a contract with yeah. someone yeah. you have responsibilities they have responsibilities we both that's how the world works right. well not at universities no they take the money. Then they do whatever they feel. Unilateral like. rescission is what they engage. In. <laughs> yeah. So, so really, so this was just the straw on the camel's back. Hold that. That this was a short segment. We'll have a longer one coming back. I want to pick up on that and the other straws that broke the camel's back. Tom Lewis. <laughs> Tom Lewis is our guest. Yeah. I mean, there's something about you know these uh, these 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 academic and intellectual jealousies. You know, why would you want to teach kids a book? That sold 30 million copies when you can teach them my book, which sold 10 that the publisher gave away. Uh, Tom Lewis and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Mr. Tom Lewis is my guest, and we're talking about uh, the demise of the Lewis Center and the problems in higher education. Mr. Lewis, of course, as many of you know, ultimately withdrew his uh, his uh, the funding for that center because— um, ASU did everything it could to uh, convert it, uh, transmogrify, and chase it off campus. We were talking right before the break, Mr. Lewis, the faculty resentment against these vastly popular, useful, best-selling books that have sold upwards of 30, 40, 50 million copies. In their, in, in their academic uh, in, and in their intellectual jealousies and and really beliefs that, you know, they should be more important than people who are successful in the real world. They who sell 20 copies of their book, if they're lucky, you know, uh, loathe the idea that you're promoting a book that actually is popular over the generations. And, you know, they, they don't understand, well, why, why, why shouldn't students be reading about queer theory and animal studies in post-colonial America 17, you know what? That, that's what they're focused on. When you're trying to give the students a gap that the university, you know, just isn't willing to fulfill, that drove them nuts, and I can I can appreciate that because you're 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 issuing a challenge not just to the students, you're issuing a challenge to the faculty. You're issuing a challenge to the faculty that engages in this kind of sophisticated, exquisite level of conversation, but whose roots at the fundamental base are essentially meaninglessness, meaningless. They stand for meaninglessness, what these professors uh, profess. And you called them on it, and they resented you for it, and they exercised their power until you were forced to exercise yours. <clears throat> Is that a close summary? I, I think so. Um, you know, um, <clears throat> the decision to, to rescind the gift, though, was I've learned as a longtime donor that you always have to have the right to eject. Sure. That was a principle I learned in real estate. Okay. We called it the ripcord. Mm -hmm. You had to always have a ripcord to, to eject from a bad deal. Mm -hmm. And so we had that, that uh, uh, option. But it was so blatant. Yeah. <clears throat> the, the violation, the breach of this agreement, and it was an agreement, by the way. And, you know, and we'd had this this program going on for a number of years. Hugely successful. The students loved it. Yeah, they, they really did. Ann Atkinson really did a great job. <clears throat> but the prior dean, Mark Jacobs, I'd known him for 20 years. He was a friend. He was a really good 
man. He, uh, Michael Crow recruited him from Swarthmore 20 years ago, and he, he really ran a good a good college, I think, at Barrett. And he, but then when he retired, they brought in the new dean, mm-hmm. and she came from Alabama, and and but you, she just was not really a very strong leader at, at all. And <clears throat> and she came with a catalog of resentments, a catalog of resentments against this kind of teaching. I I don't really know her very well, but um, but it was it was the, but the reaction of the faculty, and as I said in the letter that I wrote to them, it was the um, <clears throat> it was the kind of the, the level of left wing hostility. Mm-hmm. Now it's one thing to kind of be a little mad or maybe even a little angry or sure. maybe very angry, yeah. but this was was uh, the hostility yeah. the level of hostility was so great and they were intimidating Anne and a few of the faculty were sending her nasty grams and even getting in her face about it so this was outright nastiness and um, just a level of hostility and radical um, ideology yeah it's like whoa radical ideology married to bullying yeah but 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 I guess when you when you put something under pressure you mm-hmm. find out what you're dealing with yep. you know when you when you take a person and you turn up the heat, yep. you find out who they are. You bet. And uh, that's what we did there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was just unacceptable, uh, way beyond unacceptable. So it was really a very easy decision for me to make. And the way I look at it, too, as, as a businessman and as a donor, <clears throat> we try to allocate our gifts to the, to the ones that are the most helpful. Sure. And to, and to get maximum impact. And so here... I was allocating a lot of assets <clears throat> to something that was getting negative input. So, yeah. so th- it w- this was a no-brainer for me. And uh, meanwhile, they're defaming <clears throat> you with no support from the university, and I don't know how anyone <clears throat> could reasonably expect someone to <clears throat> endow their own defamation. <clears throat> well, you know, I don't really feel like they were defaming me at all. I don't, I, I don't feel that. I think they just, uh, you know, they did not buy the values of the Lewis Center because the values were. I'll, I'm going to say the you know the the American dream. Uh, America is a great country. You can be a great success. You just have to work hard. You have to get out there and earn it. You know, and, and principles like that, time tested principles. That, but they didn't buy into to the values of that. And um, <clears throat> you know, another thing I want to say about faculty is that I've spent a lot of time on uh, self awareness assessments, and <clears throat> and there's a lot of ways you can very quickly find out what your values are, and and but uh, there's six primary values, theoretical, social, aesthetic, and those are the liberal values. But it's this, theor- this high theoretical value, what it stands for is you love learning for learning's sake. You love knowledge for the pursuit of knowledge, not f- to do any good, but just for the, for the, for the benefit of having knowledge. Mm-hmm. And to me, that makes no sense. The conservative values are utilitarian, individualistic, and traditional. So those are the business people and the engineers and the doers and the builders. But, but they're just so theoretical <clears throat> that they're living in the, in the, in the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I do think there's a lot of sadness in, yeah. that, in that group oh, of people. Sure there is. Because when, when, you just have, when you live the life of the mind, mm-hmm. which is what, what they like to say, that's a pretty lonely, sad life. <laughs> well, it's a so it's a sad and lonely life when it's the life of your mind that, as Alan Bloom once said, 
in the closing of the American mind, closes off anything that might challenge it. This was the whole issue of why there is a crisis of free speech at our universities, including ASU, is it is a unidirectional orthodox view of life that will not open itself or the students' minds to alternative points of view, which is the whole purpose of academic freedom and the First Amendment, wouldn't you say? That's the problem. It's it's the singular mind that's the problem. Yeah, it, and, and it's, it's so odd because they like to think that they're this place of exchange of ideas, right. but now, given the the way the world is, that they're the absolute opposite of that. Right. They are the they are the biggest anti free speech organizations in in America. That's right. These public universities, you cannot walk on a public university in America as a conservative and not be. Picketed, you know. I mean, I mean, I, I've been on college campuses before as a conservative speaker. I've had five plainclothes bodyguards. I have said this a million times. There's no leftist speaker brought on campus that requires security. Um, but you know, it becomes it, it becomes a uh, it becomes a crisis center, and uh, it becomes it becomes you know a high security risk every time a conservative comes on who has to bring with him or her their own private security. Angela Davis comes to uh, speaks at ASU. Ibram Kendi speaks at ASU. No one says a peep. This last week, the Socialist Marxist Revolutionary Organization of Students of ASU had banners of Karl Marx with the hammer and sickle. No one said a peep. But bring in Dennis Prager, and boy, they yeah. raise the rooftops yeah. off the rainforest. Let, let me let me take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right. By the way, that point alone proves there's no single standard at ASU. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's been a delight having Mr. Tom Lewis, T.W. Lewis, in uh, studio with us this past hour, author of Solid Ground, a foundation for winning in work and in life, who's become, uh, through crash courses uh, (laughs) in his own right and under his own banner, an expert on higher education as well. Mr. Lewis, you wanted to say a word about the way things flow down with the way the administration at these universities work. Yeah, I I think... Big public universities, and I've gotten to know three of them, specific ones, very well. Um, they seem to have some things in common. And um, I guess th- it, there's kind of a detente there. There's kind of a of a, of a negotiated peace. It's almost like Israel and, and uh, Palestine, you know, where they have a – they, they each kind of have their turf. And a lot of them call it shared governance. And I think – like the presidents of the universities that I know use that phrase like, oh, we have shared governance. No. I'm not the dictator, right. but we share our governance. And when they say that, they're, they're talking about we're sharing it with the faculty. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they kind of pander to the faculty like, oh, <clears throat> I'm not the boss. We're all the bosses. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they give them that little window of of, of – <clears throat> Making them believe that they actually are, 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 are have a say. Yeah, a facade of empowerment. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And so – but what the presidents mostly do is is chase the money. Yeah. Um, they go after the big donors. They go after the um, <clears throat> you know the government grants, the state funding. I mean, it's all about bringing in the money. And so, and I think really the the, the fastest way to fix public universities is to hit them in the pockets. <clears throat> you know, and, and uh, that's really the only way you'll get their attention because they're flush. Uh, they've got tons of money coming in. The tuition rates are ridiculously high. They're able to get it. And they keep talking about student success as our number one priority, when in fact my observation is it's the last priority. Sure. But they say that, you know. But but if you watch their feet, you know, instead of their mouths, 
<clears throat> the students are not getting. If they cared about the students, they would care about the curricula. Yeah. But they but they abdicate the curricula to the faculty, and the faculty can teach anything from witchcraft to to how to have sex with a kraken. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was talking once to a provost at a university who was supposed to be the chief academic officer, and I asked him, "What is your top priority?" And he said, "Increase enrollment by twenty percent." So they're focused on. You know, because they're, you know, the number of high school graduates is going down in yep. America. What do you do? You try to bring in more foreign students. You try to bring in more out-of-state students, all that. You think the deans are really the pe- the, the CEOs of their colleges. They're not. <clears throat> they're also fundraisers. Sure. They have very little authority. Sure. <clears throat> and then the faculty are rogue. They can really do whatever they want. Right. And the students are at the bottom, are getting the short stick. That's right. It's kind of... You know, I kind of think of this odd oddity of our time, this irony of our time. You know, Brezhnev and the Soviet leaders had their fancy dachas, and these Marxists at these universities, they still care about the money. Mr. Tom Lewis, it's been a delight to have you in studio. I'd like to have you back. I want to talk more about your book next time, Solid Ground. It's chock full of great advice, as are you, sir. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Seth. A lot of fun. Great. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.